from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But find out do me a favor Let me in here And we can find the rhyme to fill it's almost summertime, baby. I got two weeks left of school, and I'm ready for a break. The The stuff is wearing me down, and I love the kids, as always, but I'm getting this feeling of just resistance, and the people, well, can we do nothing today? I'm like, dude, we're never going to do nothing in this class, all right? Like, some days are more intense than others, and I understand that when you've been pushing yourself real hard, at a certain point, you got to step back and be like, all right, I'm going to take a break, but I'm not going to be like, no. Let's do nothing. I don't get that. It's not going to happen, man. Don't ever ask me that. And now all the time they're asking, let's go outside. Let's go outside. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm wearing a suit, okay? I'm not. I don't, I don't want to go outside. Just as a general rule, I don't want to go outside. I want to go to my basement and play Skyrim with the lights off. That's the way you enjoy summertime. <laughs> I also realized recently why I love summertime so much, one of the reasons I love summertime, and one of the reasons I would never want year-round school. Because, first of all, when I was a kid, summertime was always so awesome to have that big, huge expanse of free time, and I would pick a project, and sometimes I'd draw comics, and sometimes I would work on a book or some kind of writing project, or once I got the ability to make music, it was working on music stuff, and... I've always loved having that huge open expanse of time and just not even having to think about what's on the horizon because that's so important. I think, generally speaking, we humans pack our schedule with like, what's coming up tomorrow? What's coming up next week? What's coming up next month? I gotta worry about it. I gotta worry about it. And for teachers, I think that's even more so. So having some time in the summer when you can just totally let that go and just have this sense of abandon and like, it doesn't matter what's happening next week because nothing's happening next week. Um, now, granted, it would be nice to have some more frequent breaks along the way, but I personally would not like to sacrifice that summer vacation, the huge open expanse of time, in order to have more frequent breaks. I would vote for having both. Uh, but the real re- the, the reason I found out recently why I would not want re- year-round school is this. Summertime is the only time I have during the whole school year when I don't have a pile of papers that I need to catch up on. Because even when it's like spring break or winter vacation, when there's like a week and a half off, sometimes two weeks, although not in my school district, we're not time for that. I'll tell you about that another time if people really want to know about it. Uh, write in and ask to demand to hear the story about the winter vacation committee I was on. Anyway, uh, yeah, even when I have a long break, like a week or two weeks, there's always papers hovering over me like, hey, you got to catch up on this, got to catch up on this, and I'll put it off for a week or, you know, whatever, but it's always there. 
and the summertime it's not there there's no papers there you know sometimes i got curriculum stuff to do or i have to work on some things to make an assignment better or you know prepare for a new class or something but but there's not that sense of like you got to grade these papers you got to grade these papers and if we had year-round school with more frequent breaks, those breaks would be shorter, and inevitably the, that would return. There would be that, like, grade these papers, finish grading these papers. And, uh, okay, granted, I could try to structure my life so I didn't have those hanging over my head, but I, I, I don't – no, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. That's just not a realistic expectation to, to get me to do it myself. Uh, I, I mean, maybe I could. I don't know. Maybe that would be a professional development goal for the future. But as it is right now, no, it's not happening. So don't take away my summertime. What's going on in the world, man? That's consolidated, by the way. They were one of my favorite groups back in the day because they're real political and dogmatic. That's one of their least dogmatic songs ever. It's called uh, Worthy Victim, and it's an awesome song from probably their best uh, aesthetic album, uh, Business of Punishment. Anyway, uh, I love when my students come up to me. They go, hey, what's up, Mr. P? And I always go, lots of things are up. It's a busy time in the world. And I start spewing information at them about what's happening in the world. For instance, there was a NATO airstrike in Afghanistan recently, and it killed, drumroll, Wait, do I have an actual drum roll? I think I do. Here we go. NATO airstrike kill. Six children. Yay. Take that, six children in Afghanistan. Quote, eight people, a man, his wife, and six of their children are dead, local government spokesman. Rahula Samoun told uh, Agence France Presse, it was an airstrike conducted by NATO. This man had no connection to the Taliban or any other terrorist group. A senior security official in Kabul confirmed the strike and deaths. Let's get out of Afghanistan. I mean, even, uh, I don't, I assume that we're building schools and roads and stuff, although I, I don't know, you, you know, you don't hear a lot of stories about that. But even if that's the case, Killing children is bound... I mean, we have a school, yay! But my six children died in an airstrike. Boo! Uh, it kind of balances itself out. No! Let's get out of Afghanistan, please! That's what I vote for. Meanwhile, back at home, there's news about Grover Norquist. This was such a happy story. I saw it in Business Week, and I, in the middle of class, I started going, Yay! I hope so! And students are like, what? I'm like, Grover Norquist! And they're like, who's that? I'm like... Uh, I'm not going to start explaining who Grover Norquist is to you kids. For those who don't know, he's this jerk who makes all these Republican senators and congressional representatives sign this pledge. I will never raise taxes for any reason. And he came up with it when he was like 12 years old. He's a moron. But he's got a lot of power. He makes people sign this pledge, and then he forces them to live by it. And if they ever break the pledge, then if they don't sign the pledge, then he puts a lot of money into the people running against them. And if they sign the pledge but then vote to raise taxes, then he calls out this war machine and they go after him and they, they fund their opponents and all this stuff. It's just crazy. So anyway, the news, the article headline is Grover Norquist losing his grip on the GOP. Most Republican members of Congress, 279 of them, have signed his pledge, uh, anti-tax pledge, and sworn never to raise taxes. And, I mean, let's be honest. This is me now. This is an untenable way to run a government. I mean, okay, if you believe that taxes are too high, fine, whatever. And we could talk about what we should cut. As Jon Stewart said when he ripped Grover Norquist apart on the show not long ago, uh, he... 
it's it's not a tenable way to just say never raise taxes never that's a it's a 12 year old's conception of the world and i'm sorry we need adults running the u.s government not children okay uh, the article goes on, but there are signs that this legendary sway over GOP lawmakers may be on the wane. Last week, Congressman Alan West, uh, we'll talk about him in a second, a Tea Party favorite from Florida, told Politico, quote, I signed that thing in the desert of Afghanistan. I got home and they wanted me to sign again during my campaign and I wouldn't. And Grover started yelling at my campaign manager. Grover is a nice guy, but I think he's a little misguided. Parentheses, Norquist says he never yelled at anyone who worked for West. Now, I should tell you, Alan West, I mean, Alan West is not some, you know, moderate, conservative, you know, oh, middle of the road, let's try to work things out. No, Alan West is a freaking lunatic right-wing nutcase. He should be the number one person that Norquist is like, yay, he's our kind of guy. No, Nor- Alan West is a guy who says, and he's not related to Adam West, the guy who was Batman back in the day. Uh, Alan West is a lunatic. He said once that someone asked him, like, because he started going on about, oh, there's all these communists in the Congress. And someone asked him, how many people in Congress are, like, actual card-carrying Marxists? And he said, I think there's, like, 70 or 80 of them. And it's like, they're members of the Progressive Caucus. And it's like, oh, anybody that's to the left of you is a Marxist. Card-carrying Marxist. Anyway, the article goes on. West joins Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble. How's that for an awesome name? Bibble on the hibble, my ribble. Uh, a fellow signee of the pledge and speaking out against it. And Scott Riggle of Virginia, who changed his mind and said he could no longer abide by it. Also, Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska, who flat out refused to sign the pledge last year and explained in a recent interview that he wasn't opposed to increasing certain taxes. Quote, removing special interest loopholes, Fortenberry told the American conservative, could potentially increase revenues and allow for lower rates. Hey, what do you know? See, this is what I love. I am I am way on the left side of the political spectrum. I accept that. I'm like a lunatic left-wing nutcase. Okay, fine. Call me whatever name you want to call me. But I have a lot of friends who are conservatives. Well, I have some friends who are conservative. I used to have a lot. It was my mark of pride back in the day when I was in like high school and that. I was like, I can get along with anybody. And I, I think the, the case now is that I just don't have much interaction with them. Teachers tend to be leftists for the most part. But I've had interactions with conservative teachers and we're like, look, here's the way I feel. And I'm like trying to get a sense of where they're coming from and provide them with information. Like, here's how I see things. And, and what about this piece of info, you know? And, and we can all exchange information and have a dialectic and grow and evolve and get off this planet, right? Um, it, but, but, but it has to be based on like logic and reason. And let's start with, okay, we're both living on a planet called Earth, right? And this is why I can't argue with people online. Because I was on a forum, it's called Political Forum, POFO. And I was really into it for a little while. But eventually it became clear to me that there was a, a, a large number of people on that site. And, and maybe even a majority who literally did not use rules of logic when they were discussing things. Like I had, I got to that point where I was like, okay, look, we both agree that we are using computers to interact on an online forum, right? Like starting with the most basic laws of reality, yeah? And the guy goes, no, I don't accept that. And I'm like, okay, there's no point in us having any conversation at all. I might as well be talking to a, a dog with a lion's face, like, what are you talking about? Am I interacting with an alien here? Like, we, we do not accept your rules of logic. 2 plus 2 equals 725. Anyway, um, speaking of uh, Republican politics in the United States, and I know that's what people tune in to hear because most of the listeners are in 
the United Kingdom. Okay, anyway, uh, experts skeptical of Romney's defense budget plan. So Mitt Romney is the Republican running against Obama here in the United States. And Mitt Romney's campaign plans for increasing military spending, this is from U.S. News & World Report, uh, while reducing the deficit are being met with skepticism by industry experts, while one top Senate GOP deficit hawk says his party lacks leaders willing to attack federal spending head-on. And, and this is the point, man. Romney can talk all this stuff about... Because Republicans have to do two things. They have to say, I'm strong on defense. I'm strong on defense. Obama's only got the f- defense but and defense. Let's be real here. War budget. We used to call it the war office. Now it's the Department of Defense. And it's ridiculous. It's war. We're waging war. It's, I mean, you know, you could say it's proactive, but it's not defense. Whatever. Um, but Republicans always have to be, oh, I'm, I'm hawkish on defense. Obama's only got the defense budget to $700 billion. And $700 billion for what? To fight whom? Religious fundamentalist nutjobs living in caves attacking us with box cutters. $700 billion, Not enough! We need more uh, laser-sighted missile systems. Whatever. Um, so that's, the Republicans have to do that. But they also have to say, we're going to cut spending all the time. How do you keep... I mean, Reagan showed us how you do this. You keep raising defense spending while cutting every other kind of spending. You end up with this ludicrous budget. We spend more than every other nation on the planet Earth combined on weapons and bombers and planes and nukes and all the rest of it. And, and then we say, oh, we have no money left over for schools. Sorry, teachers. Suck it! 35 students in every class. We'll get to that later. Uh, Romney, the presumptive Republican candidate, blah, 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 took the primary campaign trail this year. Uh, and Romney's promoting a plan to increase American troop rolls by 100,000. Incre- we just got done with the war in Iraq. We're getting out of Afghanistan eventually, maybe someday. But we still need 100,000 more troops? For what? Einstein said you can't simultaneously prevent and prepare for war. If you have a gun, if you have it, you have to use it, like in Primer, right? <sighs> increase Navy shipbuilding and modernize Air Force crafts. His plan for overall deficit reduction calls for cutting other parts of the budget, not defense. And don't get me wrong. Look, people who served in the military, let's not get it twisted. This money is not going to vets. This isn't going to help job train vets to be back in the civilian workforce. This isn't going for benefits for post-traumatic stress disorder. Because all that stuff's in short supply, right? As soon as you get back into civilian life, the Department of Defense says, uh, you're on your own, good luck. You know, no help for PTSD, no help for any of that stuff. Uh, but we have plenty of money for Halliburton uh, boondoggles and, and, and high-tech systems and all the rest of it. Whatever. Um, Senator Tom Coburn, author of The Debt Bomb and one, con- and one of Congress's most fiscally conservative members, is calling for the opposite of increased def- defense spending. So this is a guy, he's fiscally conservative. He's actually a fiscal conservative. A lot of Republicans say, oh, I'm a fiscal conservative. And then they go, oh, well, increased defense spending always. Quote, this is Tom Coburn. I've been to lots of military bases and talked to everything from four-star generals all the way down to privates. And when I asked them this question, no one of them has told me no. And it's been thousands of them, he said recently, in an event at the Heritage Foundation. At the Heritage Foundation! He's not talking at, like, Move On or, or, or the Daily Coast annual convention. He's talking to the Heritage Foundation. Quote, if you had to tomorrow without affecting our readiness or in strength, could you cut 10 to 15% out of your budget? Nobody has ever told me no. I don't know what to say. I mean, now they're, they're, I mean, they're at war with themselves, and they're losing. It's just unbelievable. Meanwhile, what, how does all these elections get funded? Because Rover Norquist is all about, oh, we're only going to help people get elected if 
they sign our little cute pledge. And the, every time you hear talking about money in politics, it's always about, oh, the influence of special interests, corporations, and unions. It's as if all three of those, and special interests, let's be honest, is about, group. I mean, it's a catch-all term. It could apply to anything from, like, you know, corporations to unions to, to poor people's campaigns to the elderly and, and, and you know, trade organizations. Oh, I mean, there's a number of th- special interests, one of those weird words like reform. It can mean anything you want it to mean. And when people hear it, they hear what they want to hear. So when I hear special interests, I think, oh, yeah, GE and BP. But when, you know, some member of the Tea Party hears special interests, they think welfare recipients, food stamps. Anyway, um, but let's not be... Let's not get it to it. And it's always, oh, Democrat and Republican. It cuts across the system. And it does, but there was a very interesting article recently from NPR, and it said, uh, outside money making the race a rich man's game and this whole thing with Citizens United. And we can talk about that some other time if people want to know. If you don't know, look up Citizens United. It's a very important Supreme Court ruling. Anyway, uh, the article said this. Right now, more than 80% of the money raised by super PACs has gone to pro-GOP groups. So it's all going to the Republicans. And according to the Center for Responsive Politics, 80% of all the money raised by these groups has come from just 100 individuals, the wealthiest people in America. So the idea behind super PACs is that anybody can contribute as much money as they want, and it goes right to these candidates, not officially because they can't coordinate, blah, blah, blah. But as we see, it all comes down to 100 rich people saying, here's how I want these races to go. And that's how they go, because they have the money to make it happen. So... Um, yeah, one more thing about politics in the United States. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Scott Brown and J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, this is an article from Business Week. And Elizabeth Warren is an awesome lady. It, it, she was, uh, I don't know what official capacity. I guess she was appointed by Obama to be in charge of uh, sort of a consumer protection bureau after the 2008 disaster and every time you ever heard her talk she was just on point with everything and she was trying to get keep track of where the tarp money went and everyone's like so where is it she's like i don't know because congress never said that banks have to let us know what they're doing with the money and she was very clear and she always said like you know there's 70 pages of things and loopholes and fine print when you get a credit card and no one can keep track of that we need to simplify it we need to do this for consumers and that for consumers and it all made sense and given the fact that 95 percent of us are consumers and not much else that we should all be like, yes, she's awesome. But the Republicans said, no, she's not. She's too political. We can't have her be in charge of this consumer bureau. And the translation of that is, she was going to actually hold these banks to task for their freaking fraudulent behavior and their immoral shystering. And instead, she wasn't allowed to be in charge of that Consumer Protection Bureau. And the, the Consumer Protection Bureau may not even happen. I don't even know what the status of that is. Because the Republicans love to do this thing where they're like, I'm voting for the Consumer Protection Bureau. And then they vote to never fund it. So it exists, but it can't do anything. Just like the CFTC. Anyway, she's now running for Senate against Scott Brown, who's a Tea Party favorite. And there's this stupid, meaningless controversy about Warren's ethnic heritage. At one point, she said something about she's Native American. And and instead of people going, oh, okay, whatever, uh, people lost their minds. And Scott Brown's campaign's been dogging this. And they're like, oh, we... And I know British listeners are like, ah, they're dogging. Ha ha, because dogging has a different meaning over in the UK. Get your mind out of the gutter, people. I'm looking at you, Stu. Anyway, uh, so the Scott Brown campaign just went nuts. Prove it. You say you're a Native American. We need documentation. We want to know how you benefited from this in Harvard. We need to know proof about it. How do you know you're Native American? And she's like, 
my mom told me. And they're like, not good enough! We demand proof! And now every article about this race is to do with, well, she said, I'm not going to talk about it. And so she went off in a huff or something like that. And it's like, dude, let's talk about freaking public policy. And what do you know? Last week, this is the article now. I'm actually getting to the article. <clears throat> Last week brought news that Brown has received $50,000 in campaign contributions from J.P. Morgan employees. Now, Warren, and, uh, you know, we're not talking about desk clerks here, okay? Anybody who has $50,000 to, to contribute to a Senate race, they're doing okay. Uh, now, Warren has taken to the airwaves seeking to capitalize on the new controversy and distract from the old one. In a tough new radio ad captured by Kantar Media's campaign media analysis group, Warren likens the bank to a purse thief, which is a good comparison, I think. Quote, Wall Street isn't going to change its ways until Washington gets serious about strong oversight and real accountability. No special deals. We need a tough cop on the beat to make sure that nobody steals your purse on Main Street or your pension on Wall Street. Amen, sister. She should be in. Co she should be head of Congress. She should get to be just auto as she gets elected, automatic. You're in charge of Congress. You get to decide what happens in Congress. Not uh, whatever. All right, let's talk about something a little more positive. Another unarmed, probably unarmed black man shot and killed by police. Davey D on his politics and uh, hip-hop and politics WordPress site. Uh, he covers a lot of this stuff, and it's so frustrating to see article after article about this because it's just one after another. These black men, most of the time they don't have any weapons, and they're shot and killed, and the police officers, n nothing ever happens to them. <sighs> this guy is named Alan Bluford. And here's what David D. writes about it. Initially, Oakland police said they were in a shootout, and Blueford shot the officer in the stomach. Later, the police said Blueford shot the officer in the leg. Next, the police said it was possible the officer was shot in the leg by another officer in a case of friendly fire. Finally, it came out the officer shot himself. He shot himself in the foot. Many believe the officer shot himself after he killed Blueford and saw the young man was unarmed. The police then double back and say a gun was recovered. The community has yet to see any evidence of fingerprints, gun residue, etc. Many have concluded the officer was planting a gun near the scene. This would not be unusual in a city that in the last 10 years has had to shell out over $58 million in wrongful death shootings and police brutality incidents. This would not be far-fetched in a city that was home to a rogue group of cops known as the Riders who were found to routinely plant drugs and guns on suspects. One of the Oakland Riders is still a fugitive at large. Adding to all this was the fact that Blueford was left to, to bleed on the ground for four hours to die while the officer who lied and then finally admitted to shooting himself was treated. So, uh, yeah, that's really messed up. And Marissa Alexander, I told you about a while back, uh, she... Uh, shot a gun into the air in order to get, scare her husband away. He was trying to beat the crap out of her once again. Nobody got hurt. She fired the gun into the ceiling or something, and now she's facing like 20 years in prison. So there's a, some action trying to get people uh, to you know speak up on her behalf and stand your ground because it happened in Florida, the same place where the Trayvon Martin killing happened, uh, and whatever. Um, and finally, another very positive story here at the end. Uh, this is a new thing from Frontline and ProPublica, which they're a really good... Uh, front, PBS Frontline is a documentary program. They're, if you do a search for PBS Frontline, I don't know if you can watch it in the UK, but people in the US, you've got to check it out. There's a website that has dozens and dozens, maybe even a hundred uh, full-length documentaries. Most of them are an hour. Some of them are half hour. And they just do amazing work covering in-depth, like the kind of investigative journalism you would think you would get from a 24-hour news 
organization like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, but they don't. All those networks ever run is the same five stories over and over again all hour, or all day, and then it's all day. And it's like Bill Hicks said, war, famine, death, AIDS, homeless, recession, depression. War, famine, death, AIDS, homeless, recession, depression. When you look out your window, where's all this stuff happening? Anyway, um... Yeah, so the PB and ProPublica is this organization that uh, worked with Frontline on a lot of different things, and they continue to work with them. I think ProPublica won maybe a, a Polk Award or some other award recently. It was a pretty major deal. Um, so they do good work. The newest uh, finding that they had, the news story, uh, in, you know, in-depth investigation they did, was about the people who climb these cell phone towers. And the headline is, In the race for better cell service, men who climb towers pay with their lives. An investigation by ProPublica and PBS Frontline shows that the convenience of mobile phones has come at a hefty price. Between 2003 and 2011, 50 climbers died working on cell sites, more than half of the nearly 100 who were killed on communications towers. Yet, cell phone carriers' connection to tower climbing deaths has remained invisible. They outsource this dangerous work to subcontractors, a practice increasingly common in risky businesses from coal mining to trucking to nuclear waste removal. If you look up the major cell carriers in the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's database of workplace accident investigations, you will not find a single tower climber fatality listed. And this is a disgrace because these people are literally dying so that we can have better, you know, coverage with our cell phones. And, and they're not showing up on the books because the companies that are benefiting from it, they, they don't have to pay any of the price. And chances are, if you work for a subcontractor, that means, I mean, why do companies subcontract out? Okay, fine. Part of it is that, okay, they're covering their butts and they can, you know, we're not responsible. But a larger part of it is saving money. A subcontractor can say, oh, we don't have to pay benefits. We don't have to pay, you know, overtime. We don't have to pay health insurance, life insurance. And I'm sure that's part of it. Because when these guys die, and maybe women too, uh, then... The, the company is just like, well, you know, subcontracting, it's dangerous work. And people know we pay a little more because it's dangerous. But meanwhile, I'll bet you anything that, and I haven't watched this one yet, but I'll bet you anything that uh, when people die on the job here, the subcontractors are like, sorry, that's just the way it is. We didn't, you know, no life insurance. I'll bet they don't have much, uh, you know, help for the widows and, uh, you know, children of these people who die. Um it's just really messed up. So uh, enjoy your mobile phones, everybody. This is when I get to be all smug and self-righteous. I don't even have a mobile phone. I mean, we have one, but I never use it. I have my iPad. God help me if I need to contact anybody. I'm not near Wi-Fi. I'm just, whatever. I can't help you there. And now... Respect my to check notch. High frequency trading news. The only story that happened this week was about the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, where Brooksley Bourne worked back in the day. They're in charge of looking at how commodity futures get traded. And it's crazy. This is where a lot of the high frequency trading comes in. One of them said, uh, I don't remember his name, but he said uh, he called them cheetahs. Because they're so fast and deadly. And it's an article from Barron's Online, known on these business sites. Um, the CFTC hasn't a clue who these traders are or what exactly they have programmed their machines to do. Don't you think that's something we ought to keep track of? Who are they and what are they doing? No. All we know is they're moving real fast and we don't know who they are. Great. That's a recipe for success in the long term to make sure our financial system is healthy. <laughs> 
Chicago's uh, CME, uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I think, maybe, uh, Com Commodities Mercantile Exchange, whatever, uh, refuses to disclose any information about its high-frequency trading customers. A March 2010 article in CME Group Magazine, which Chilton, the guy from the CFTC, uh, recalls from memory purportedly identified high-frequency trading firm RSJ of Prague as the CME's third-largest customer. And lots of stuff gets traded at the CME. That's a huge deal. The article apparently has been scrubbed from the exchange's website. When I, the article author, when I requested a copy to confirm Chilton's memory, I was told that no one at the CME recalled ever seeing such a piece. After I found the issue's table of contents elsewhere on the web, which referenced a feature on RSJ, a CME spokesman said the article is no longer available. Oh, imagine that. That's convenient. No! Not good enough! There's there's somebody watching the CME, right? The CFTC's probably in charge of regulating them. Why don't they make them issue that article? Give us! We want information! Gah! Speaking of cell phones, I should have used I should have led the economics thing with this to give a seamless transition. Whatever, too late. Um anyway, uh yeah, keeping conflict minerals out of your cell phone. Uh, this is an article from Business Week once again. If if you, if I don't know where it's from, I should just go. It's from Business Week because chances are it's from Business Week. That's like where I get all my news now. What's going on in Madison, Wisconsin? I don't know. Business Week doesn't cover that stuff. Getting minerals out of the country and into your phone has long involved an informal supply chain which self-employed miners scraped the pits for minerals, then sold them to a network of traders who would take them to the border and sold them to foreign refiners, with warlords and militias extorting the players along the way. So for those who don't know, uh, the stuff in your cell phone, including this, chem or this mineral called coltan, uh, it's really rare and it requires mining and a lot of it's found in Africa. Well, a lot of the stuff that gets mined in Africa, first of all, gets mined under very bad conditions. People get paid very, very little along the way, even though the people who resell it make lots of money because it's so rare. The miners themselves generally don't get very much at all. Same with diamonds, same with gold and everything. Anyway, um, so uh, there's some efforts to try to get cell phones made without using conflict minerals because a lot of times the warlords and the militias will will put their fist in along the way and take some money. And so the, the sell of these minerals to go into cell phones ends up uh, perpetuating these conflicts because this is how the rebel groups and the military and militia groups get money to buy weapons to continue these civil wars that are going on in lots of parts of Africa. Anyway, um, Congress wanted the United States to quit lining armed groups' pockets. As part of the 2010 Dodd-Frank law, it mandated that companies certify to the Securities and Exchange Commission that their supply chains for products using tantalum, tin, tungsten, and gold are, quote, Democratic Republic of Congo, T DRC, conflict-free, a standard the SEC has yet to define. So it's not quite clear how this is going to be defined, but it is possible to do. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a, a lobbying group from corporate America, they say that the forthcoming regulation will be extremely costly and complicated to implement. We can't do it. It's going to cost much. Cell phones are going to cost five times as much. Blah, 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 blah. A, uh, but it's not true because they have f uh, this sort of overview of these companies that are doing it. And it's not incredibly complex. It's not too costly. AVX needed a partner in the DRC that would allow independent auditors to supervise both extraction and transport. After much scouting, the company found MMR, an Indian company, with a government license to mine in Katanga, a relatively peaceful province. AVX helps to finance MMR's operation and purchases its ore at global market prices about $100 a ton. The auditing costs are, quote, negligible, says Daniel Persico, the company's vice president for strategic marketing and business development. The strategy has, quote, good potential to cut down on corruption and abuse, says Darren 
Darren Fenwick, the director of the Enough Project, a human rights group that monitors conflict minerals. So it can be done. Don't believe the hype. It's this whole thing, but you can't make it happen. And the same thing is true about fair labor standards and environmental standards. Business groups always come out and they go, it can't be done. Everything will cost more. It'll be setting prices to the roof. No, it won't. You're just saying that to scare people into not taking action that'll cost business a little bit. There's this thing I heard on Bill Moyers recently where this woman was talking about the this like stock trading tax. A little tiny tax on every like $100,000 of stocks you buy and sell. I don't remember exactly the details. You can find it if you look. And it's like around the world people are pushing for this because it's a way to get more money for governments without taxing ordinary working people. And it's, it makes perfect sense. And there are business groups, the, the people on Wall Street, lose their minds. No! No! We'll just pass it along to consumers. It won't do anything. It'll make stocks a lot higher, and that'll just raise inflation. It's all a bunch of hype. Don't believe it, man. I'm ready to say here and now. That's fooey. Because what are we going to do to save money? Here's what we're going to do to save We don't come up with new ways to raise revenue. Here's what happens. The next article is a perfect segue. From Business Week, once again, Detroit to eliminate half of its streetlights to save money. We're turning off streetlights. And it's not just Detroit. There's a bunch of cities around the United States who are like, we don't have money. What do we do? Can't raise taxes. Grover Norquist says that's against the law. Uh, so we better, I don't know, let's just turn off all the streetlights. People don't need lights at night. Who came up with that idea, being able to see at night? What a bunch of idiots. Just take Cat Eye. You like that Skyrim reference I threw in there? It's pretty slick. <clears throat> As it is, 40% of the 88,000 streetlights are broken, and the city, whose finances are to be overseen by an appointed board, can't afford to fix them. Mayor Dave Bing's plan would create an authority to borrow $160 million to upgrade and reduce the number of streetlights to 46,000. Maintenance would be contracted out, saving the city $10 million a year. Once again, here we go. Contracting out, subcontractors, it's everywhere, man. And, w- and notice what happens. And here's why it re- it's really shooting yourself in the foot. Subcontracted out. What does that mean? It means that people who used to work for um, the city maintaining streetlights, and they probably had you know pensions and health benefits, suddenly they're working for probably two-thirds or half the pay, and they get no benefits. The city saves money, yeah, but here's the thing. That money, a lot of it's going to the private owners of those subcontracting companies, subcontracting companies, I can't talk, um, and the, the, so, so the, the point is that there's now less money in the community because people who were getting a better wage have less money to spend. And, and so the city, the, what that does, it, this is the whole thing about austerity that Paul Krugman's always talking about. It, it shrinks the economy. It slows the growth of the economy, and it actually hurts the community more because people are working with less money. And, okay, the city saves some money, but where's that money going to go? It's just, ah, a single broken streetlight on the northeast side brings fear to Cynthia Perry, 55. It hasn't worked for six years, Perry said in an interview on the darkened sidewalk where she walks from her garage to her house entrance. I'm afraid of coming in at night, she said. I'm not going to seclude myself in the house and never go anywhere. But, I mean, this is how it affects people. And and you know what? It's people who don't have lobbyists. They're not part of Grover Norquist's group. They're not part of the 80% of the super PAC money that goes to GOP candidates. And, and all that. It's, so it gives this lopsided view of how people feel. And the people who have to live with broken streetlights and, and no bus routes where they live and no public transportation, these people don't even show up on the political radar. Because CNN and Business Week aren't... I mean, actually, Business Week did interview them step back. 
But most media outlets aren't going to interview these people. They don't show up in debates. So the politicians are like, whatever. People just want us to not raise taxes because Grover Norquist doesn't give two craps about Cynthia Perry and other people have to live with the consequences of busted up streetlights. And it makes me sick because then it's not about what the community needs. It's about what, oh, we don't want to tax Wall Street. It's going to cost too much. Uh, meanwhile, this is a great story. Uh, this is from republicreport.org. Uh, former J.P. Morgan lobbyist manages the banking committee expected to investigate J.P. Morgan's trading loss. So this whole thing that came out, Jamie Dimon, eh, we made a stupid mistake, $2 billion. Oh, turns out it's $3 billion. Uh, there's this Senate banking committee that's responding to it. Who's going to be in charge of that committee? The freaking former lobbyist for J.P. Morgan. It's this. It's called uh, regulatory capture. Uh, the regulation committees are made up of people who used to lobby for the company, and the company, the lobbyists are made up of people who used to work there or good friends with them. So it's this revolving door. It's a big buddy club, and nobody like Elizabeth Warren is allowed into the cycle to break it up. Brooks Lee Bourne tries to speak up. They kick her out, and I'm sorry. I don't think it's some crazy coincidence that these are all women who get silenced or marginalized, and they try to speak up about how these companies, these banking financial firms are destroying our economy. Anyway, um, the Senate Banking Committee is responding to outrage over the news that J.P. Morgan lost some $3 billion in customer money because of a risky trading strategy. The committee is preparing for two hearings with regulators, and this is what Obama was talking about. It's going to be investigated. Don't worry. We're looking into it. We'll find out what happened. There will be accountability. No, there won't. Because the committee is preparing for two hearings with regulators, and Senator Tim Johnson, Democrat from South Dakota, chair of the committee, is hoping that Jamie Dimon will testify in the near future. Quote, our due diligence has made it clear that the banking committee should hear directly from J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, Johnson said in a statement last week. Okay, fine, that's well and good, but, I mean, we saw these pinheads testifying when 2008 went down, and what do they do? They go in and they go, I had no idea what's going on, I don't know, I don't know, and it's it's like Homer Simpson when he goes to China. I don't know. Um, it, I'm not being racist. That was Homer Simpson, and he was like choking on a chicken bone, I think. I don't know. Anyway, um, what was I talking about? Yeah. So, and, and it's that it's that plausible deniability thing, and it's such a bunch of hooey. And I don't know. It's like um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Fox News. Uh, News of the World. Uh, what's his name? Rupert Murdoch, that's it. His name is Rupert Murdoch. He goes in and he goes, I didn't know what was going on. They were hacking the phones of dead teenagers. How am I supposed to know? Should have known, okay? And Jamie Dimon, if you didn't know what was going on at J.P. Morgan Chase, you should have known you're going to prison anyway. I'll bet you if we sent one CEO to prison under the should have known statute, we'd see those banks change like that. There would be no more CEOs going, I didn't know what was going on. Should have known, 20 years in prison, suddenly every CEO, I know exactly what's going on in my company, don't even trip, I got this, I know what's going on. And then, if we had that, we would see a lot less of this fraud. The only reason the fraud happens is because no one gets punished for it. People know they can get away with it. A times B times C equals X. All right, back to the article. Luckily for Diamond, the professional staff in charge of managing the banking committee will be quite familiar to him and his team of lobbyists. That's because the staff director for the Senate Banking Committee is none other than a former J.P. Morgan lobbyist, Dwight Fettig. So go get him, Dwight Fettig. Remember who's your daddy, all right? You work for J.P. Morgan, not the American people. Um, and finally, in economics this week, uh, there was a really good article on Economy Watch by a guy named Mohammed A. 
L. Orion. Uh, he served as president and CEO of the Harvard Management Company for two years while also working at the International Monetary Fund for 15 years. In 2008, his book, When Markets Collide, won the Financial Times Award for Business Book of the Year, in addition to being named as one of the best business books of all time by the independent newspaper. Um, so this isn't some, again, left-wing, lunatic, wacky, hippie loser uh, writing on you know Common Dreams or whatever. I, I think I have an article from Common Dreams coming up, though. Uh, I read Common Dreams. What of it? But I also read Economy Watch. So, you know, I'm getting both sides. What? Anyway, this was about Greece. And I, I said before, I'm not, I don't really feel like I have a good sense of what really happened in Greece. And his article tries to break it down. And it's kind of short for this kind of in-depth thing. But he blames four groups. And I'm going to highlight two of them. He says, Greece's private lenders were more than happy to pour money into the country, only to shirk their burden-sharing responsibilities when the artificial boom could no longer be sustained. So once again, we see this system of companies making lots of money, and then when something bad happens, they're, oh, we're out of here. We had no idea. We weren't responsible. We don't have any part to play in the bubble. Just like when the housing bubble burst in the United States, and all the conservatives start going, well, it's poor people's responsibility. They shouldn't be buying houses they couldn't afford. You can't blame the banks for that. Quit buying houses, poor people. And as I said before, when the food bubble burst, suddenly people are going to be, oh, people, stop eating food, poor people. You suck. Uh, back to the article. The overlending was so widespread that at one point it drove down the yield differential. I have no idea what this means between Greek and German bonds to just six, six basic six basis points, a ridiculously low level for two countries that differ so fundamentally in terms of economic management and financial conditions. Later on, finally, there was the International Monetary Fund. And there's another example. In addition to him, there's Joseph Stiglitz and Hajun Chang, people who have worked for the IMF, who then go on to say, there's some really serious problems with the IMF. And I've been saying this for years. In 1999, when the WTO was going to meet in Seattle, I remember telling everybody and their mother, you got to start learning about the IMF. It's such a screwed up institution. We've got to make some serious changes or abolish it all together and people are like you're a weirdo tinfoil hat whatever I'm like you know what and then Seattle exploded and then we had Cancun after that and we had Qatar uh, Doha and and it all you know we saw and I think okay so the Doha round fell apart Seattle fell apart obviously Doha round fell apart and you know what I I don't think it's a stretch in fact I know it's not a stretch because I heard from delegates, I read interviews, not personally, they're calling up the delegate from Chile. Hey, this is Eric Piotrowski here. What do you think about what's going on in the streets of Doha? Nothing was going on in the streets of Doha because Qatar doesn't play that. There was no protest whatsoever. You try to protest in Doha, you're going to wind up with no hands and upside down in a torture prison. Anyway, um, <laughs> kind of like the one in Bagram Air Base. Anyway, moving on. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Anyway, you got me? Ah! <sighs> okay. Here's the thing. The the protest that happened in Seattle, a lot of people were like, oh, it's just a bunch of black bo- black block anarchists and, and people throwing bricks through the windows of Nike Town and all that. And I, don't get me wrong, I don't really approve of property damage. It's not violence, let's be clear. It's throwing a brick through a window of a building is different from throwing a brick at the head of a person, okay? Corporations are not people, and Nike Town is not someone's home, okay? It's a business, There's an important difference there. Now, that said, I don't think it makes sense to throw bricks through Nike Town either. It is a way of showing how angry people are, which ratchets up the consequence of this sort of neoliberal economic policy, but I still don't approve of it. And, I, you know, I'm friends with anarchists, and I talk to people online who are like, you got to smash the state, man. Voting does nothing. But whatever. I don't buy that. I'm sorry. 
I live in Wisconsin, okay? I saw what happened when Russ Feingold got kicked out of office by Bob Johnson, or whatever the hell his name is, uh, Bob Roberts. We might as well call him Bob Roberts. I'm going to do that. The, that new idiot senator in Wisconsin, I'm going to start calling him Bob Roberts because that's exactly who he is. A freaking suit. An empty suit. That's all he is. Um, I said it. Anyway... What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So but those protests that happened in Seattle, did they have an effect? Yes, they had an effect. And I'm not just saying that because I was happy to see them happen, but they, they had an effect because they gave trade representatives from smaller, less powerful countries the, the, the political space to say, we need more protections for our workers. We need the ability to avoid dumping and we need the ability to institute tariffs and things like that what what the powerful countries call barriers to free trade poor countries say we need this in order to not be led down to this race to the bottom like we see in indonesia and china and all the rest of it so that's why i think these protests are important that happen in seattle and elsewhere um and you know the protests are happening i mean occupy wall street is basically a continuation of that and i'm very happy to see the occupy movement happen i, I wish occupy uh, oh, there's so many things I wish Occupy could do. I, I mean, I wish I, I've seen it mutate and transform into like, let, what if we had community banks and let's come up with visions for a better tomorrow, which I love to see that because it's not enough to just say anti this, anti this, although that's mostly what I do, granted. But this vision of a better tomorrow, I think, is awesome. And I'd like to see Occupy sustain itself and, and have influence in the political realm, even if a lot of people in Occupy are like, voting does nothing. I, I, first of all, I, I've just said I don't buy that. But But even if you don't, talk about party politics, having some sort of impact in the political sphere is important in other ways. Because even if you don't think uh, voting does anything, and maybe there are some people listening to this who believe that, I'm sorry to tell you this, most of your fellow humans don't buy that, okay? People want the right to vote who don't have it, and those people who do have it often take it for granted. And and I'm sorry to say, look, even if you don't believe that voting does anything, I can't convince you of it, a lot of people do believe voting does something, so if you want to convince them, you have to say, hey, I respect the fact that you believe that. Now, how can we work together? Even if I don't agree with you on that, we still got to find ways to work together. And we can do that if we want Occupy to be something more than just, as it was in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, a temporary place for homeless folks to live. And I think it needs to be more than that. I mean, I'm glad they had a place to live for a while. And I think it sucks that they shut down the Occupy place in Madison, Wisconsin, because it meant that these homeless people had to go somewhere else. And who knows where they went. Fortunately, it's summertime. I can't imagine being homeless in the winter in Wisconsin. Whatever, I'm getting off topic. Back to this piece from... Um, Mohammed uh, A. L. Arayan. Uh, he said, The International Monetary Fund is an institution charged with safeguarding global financial stability and being a trusted advisor to individual countries. It appears that the IMF succumbed too easily to political pressures, both during the boom and the bust. Political expediency seems to have trumped analytical robustness, undermining both the fund's direct beneficial role and its function as a policy and financial catalyst. So there's that. All right, enough of that. Let's talk about education. Talk about 
Talk about people protesting. Oh my God, there have been huge protests, hundreds of thousands of people protesting in Spain and Canada and elsewhere because people aren't going to take these austerity measures when it comes to education. They're not going to take it lying down. Uh, hundreds of thousands protest education cuts in Spain as part of sweeping budget cuts begun by the Socialist Party and intensified by the right-wing Popular Party elected into an absolute majority last November. The central government hopes to reduce spending on education by more than 10 billion euros by 2015. That will bring education spending down to a 3.9% share of GDP, well below the European Union average of 5.5%. In practice, the cuts will amount to increased hours for teachers and professors, up to a 50% increase in tuition for public universities, and a 20% increase in the maximum number of students per class. Class size. We'll come back to class size in a minute. Keeps going up. In primary education, the limit would rise from 25 to 30 students per class, and in secondary education, from 30 to 36. Man, just when I think I have problems with 28 in my AP classes, they got 36 in Spain. Nuts! For non-obligatory secondary education, students ages 16 to 18, classrooms would be filled with up to 46 students. It's lunacy! Uh, 400,000 people protested in Quebec. This is from Democracy Now! The other thing about Spain was from therealnews.com, which, granted, it's kind of a strange name for a news source. I probably could find another source for that article, but whatever. It's everywhere. Look up Spain protests. You'll find news about it. Quit coming to me for all your news needs. If you get all your news from me, that's just weird. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you think I'm a good source, and I mean, I provide links on the website to everything, but you shouldn't rely on just me. I mean, everybody will tell this Noam Chomsky and you know Howard Zinn, Hajin Chang, like consult a lot of sources. That's how you get triangulation, right, and confirmation for the truth. Anyway, uh, yeah, Democracy Now reported on 400,000 people protesting in Quebec. Uh, tens of thousands filled the streets of Montreal on Tuesday in the largest protest to date in Quebec's student strike. The protests have swelled in recent days after the Quebec provincial government... I should be reading this in a French accent because they speak French in Quebec. ...approved an emergency law requiring demonstrators to inform police of any protest route involving 50, 50 or more people. Tuesday's protest fell on the strike's 100th day and organized, say, up to... Mille. 400,000 people took part. Solidarity demonstrations were held across Canada as well as in New York with supporters donning the red felt square that has come to symbolize the Quebec student strike. That's a powerful image. Uh, Cedar Revolution in Lebanon! And and the, 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 you know, uprisings, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Yes! And what, Quebec, what do you, we got... We have red felt squares. I have a square of red felt here. I mean, maybe that's a powerful symbol for some reason, but it just sounds dumb to me. Oh, we're a red felt square. I will wear this square made of the red felt. C'est la rouge. I don't know how you say felt. Uh, anyway. Uh, meanwhile, back in the good old USA. Oh, <laughs> yeah, America. Um... I don't have that soundbite, apparently. Whatever. I don't need it. Soundbites are for the other show, dude. Let it be. Mitt Romney is defending his education policies in Philadelphia. I, if I were Mitt Romney, I would just shut up about education. Because he had the nerve to come up and you know several months ago to be like, I don't care about very poor people. And at least he was being honest, man. Let me tell you what. And he should know better now than to start talking about things he doesn't know about. And you know what? I'm sorry, Mitt. You can... You, hey... If you say you know about how businesses work and how to stimulate business, I'll take your word for it. Although I don't think you're really trying to stimulate business. I just think you're trying to give money to business, but whatever. Uh, you don't know anything about education. How would you know anything about education? Shut up about education. 
but it was funny because the whole article, and this is from the Los Angeles Times, uh, the whole article is all about how everybody that that greeted him in Philadelphia was like, you suck. Your education policies suck. Uh, so here's the article. When Romney's customized campaign bus rolled up to the Universal Blueford Charter School, he could see signs on the row houses across the street, including one that bore Obama's picture in the words, We got your back. Another sign read, Stop privatizing. Because that's the thing with Republicans in the United States. They want to privatize, and he talks about vouchers, and oh, God. Just when you thought vouchers was done, right? Hey, 1992 called. They want their stupid, misguided education policy back. Nope, it's back, baby. And they're going to try pushing it again. It's like privatizing Social Security. Like, they keep trying with that, and as many times as the American people are like, no, bad idea, stupid, get your dumb propaganda out of here. Republicans keep coming back with, no, it's a good idea. Anyway, uh, inside the newly renovated two-story brick school building, the welcome was much friendlier. I mean, what are you going to do when a Republican candidate comes to visit your school? You suck it out! No. Uh, Though Romney was challenged repeatedly during a roundtable discussion with educators, so they did challenge him uh, to defend his claim that reducing class size doesn't improve student performance. The former Massachusetts governor contends that pressing for smaller classes is a ploy by teachers' unions, one of his favorite targets, to get more teachers hired. So, yeah... Ugh. Stephen Morris, a music instructor at Blueford, told Romney, quote, I can't think of any teacher in the whole time I've been teaching 13 years who would say that more students in the classroom would benefit them. And I can't think of a parent that would say, I would like my teacher to be in a room with a lot of kids and only one teacher, end quote. Ronald Benner, whose technology classes range from 23 to 28 students, chimed in that, quote, you can give more personalized attention to each student if you have a smaller class size, end quote. Another teacher emphasized the importance of keeping classes below 18 students in early primary grades. Now, I've seen other things that say, and in fact, there's this Denver Post article we're going to get to in a second that said, okay, look, the research is mixed. When it comes to early grades, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, the research is quite clear that small classes are absolutely essential and that having one-on-one time with students, especially at those young ages, is so important. And that's why in Wisconsin we have this thing called, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's like SAGE. It's something to do with the class sizes, especially for like kindergarten ages. Um, Those early ages, we've got to keep the class sizes small. And I'm sure Scott Walker's dismantling that. I can't even keep up with all this crazy stuff he's doing, our governor here in this state. Um, We're hopefully going to get rid of him in the next few weeks. If you hear me having a big loud party, you know it's because Scott Scott Walker lost the recall election. Right now, it's kind of neck and neck. Anyway, uh, yeah, but so the research is quite clear that those early grades absolutely got to have small classes. And the research is apparently mixed when it comes to higher up. You get to middle school and high school, you know, ages 12 to 18. It's not as clear that small classes benefit students. And don't get me wrong. I understand we have to do what's best for students. Okay, fine. I get that. I think what teachers want should also matter, but... I don't want to only do what's best for teachers. I want to do what's best for kids. And even if that means it's not best for me, okay, I'm willing to make some sacrifices. And so if the research says that, and it, some, you know, Romney's whole thing is, the research says that what's most important is that you have a great teacher in front of the room. Ugh. I added the, that's not part of the research. Anyway, uh, you know what? That's the most recent research. That's the That's the popular research that is being promoted by conservative education reformers, okay? That's not all the research. That's what some of the research says, but some of the research says, and I can tell you my perspective as a teacher is, smaller class sizes mean absolutely you get more time to have one-on-one time with students. If I'm supposed, and everybody agrees with this, every kid learns differently. Think about you. 
you probably didn't learn exactly the same way as the person sitting next to you in school. You probably see the world in a slightly different way from your best friends or your spouse or whoever it is, right? So every person has an individual way of looking at things and the way they learn best. Some people learn best by looking at things. Some people learn best by hearing things. If we have 30 kids in every class, it's so much harder for us to deliver some you know, personalized stuff that gets to every kid's best way of learning. And the more kids you cram into the room, even great teachers like me <clears throat> have a hard time uh, making the educational experience great for each kid because you have so much more to keep track of. I've said this before, probably on this show. The more kids you cram in, it doesn't increase the stress level for the teacher by a factor of one. It 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 squares the stress level for the teacher, every student. Because, I mean, think about it. You have an hour with one kid. That's an hour with that kid. You put in one more kid, and now the teacher is tutoring two children. Suddenly, we only have a half an hour for each of those kids. Add three kids. Now, we only have 20 minutes for each of them. Four kids, 15 minutes, et cetera, et cetera, until the point where, I mean, it, it reach a certain point with the group. You can't do one-on-one -on -one stuff and unless you cycle through them. And the more kids you have, the more time it takes to cycle through them. Trust me. I do this in my creative writing classes. It takes weeks to make with every kid and that's assuming that every kid when you say have your story ready on Monday for me to read a third of the class is going to go oh was that due today so the kids you were going to meet with on Monday you have to suddenly have other kids and you're like oh wait I guess I'll meet with you today and he goes I don't have it mine's due tomorrow and you're like oh wait anybody have theirs ready yet and two might have it and you're like okay I'll meet with you and then they go okay when's it due and you say okay yours is, I met with you on Monday it's due on Thursday and they go the people are supposed to meet with on Tuesday have theirs due Friday why don't I get till Friday and you're like because you get everybody gets three days it's a it's a headache and a half and my point is again that's the stress factor that goes up by a square each time you add another kid to the room. So uh, I understand that sometimes we got to pull our weight, but don't give me this stuff that class size doesn't matter, okay? I can tell you for sure that it matters. It matters a lot. Now, I'm not going to claim to know everything about what the research says about whether class size is the most important thing, but Romney's whole thing about it doesn't matter. I mean, don't get me. It, no, 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 no. Um, and so, yeah, finally on this education tip, uh, the, the article, the Denver Post had this really good article about class sizes, and they talk about the research on both sides of it, and, you know, they talk to experts on every stripe of the political spectrum, but I really like this part toward the end where they talked about how the, the increased class sizes, regardless of what the research says, it can have an effect on the teacher, which then, of course, trickles down to the students. And it talks about how the stress that it gives to teachers. At Mountain Range High School in the Adams 12 District, Brandy Potestio teaches five English classes heavy on writing. Hey, that sounds familiar. I also teach five English classes heavy on writing. Three years ago, she averaged about 25 students per class. That number now hovers around 33. I guess I'm lucky to be back at 25. I average about 25 students in each of my classes. The difference multiplied by five comes to roughly another class and a half of pupils based on her former averages. For her, class size isn't just a factor. It's the biggest factor, especially in a subject like English that often requires complex student evaluation. Amen, brother or sister, tell it. Quote, grading is insane, Potestio said. It's always time-consuming, but when you increase class size, it's overwhelming. I can see why some teachers don't assign a lot. I wish I could assign less, but it's not in my DNA. Hey, man, that's me too, man. That's me right there. You and me, Potestio. That's, you and I are just like, uh, just like that, Brandy. What? Um... Yeah, I have students all the time. It's your fault for giving us this work to do. You're in a writing class. What do you expect?
That's the way writing classes work. I tell you what to write, and then you write it, and I tell you how well you did and what you need to improve about your writing. That's what a writing class is! Give me a break! Ah! The result can be burnout if the current trend continues. They'll lose good teachers, Potestio said. If you're a good teacher, you know this is not possible forever unless you want to have zero life. And I gotta be honest, people, I'm gonna have a life, okay? I, I know a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers who, who, who sacrifice everything for their students. And I think that's great. I think the students are lucky to have teachers like that. I'm not gonna be one of those teachers. I'm sorry. I'm not going to grade papers all night every night, okay? I'm not going to give up all my weekends. I'm not going to give up leisure time. It is a human right. Article 24 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says humans have the right to leisure. And and I'm going to exercise that right because I'm not going to go insane. I'm not going to burn out, okay? And I don't know how these teachers do this, giving up all their free time to the students. And, and that's the thing with this Teach for America thing because you have a lot of these, like, passionate and I, god love them i was like this i didn't have much of a life my first year teaching because it was like i'm gonna give everything i have to the kids and don't get me wrong i'm still giving like 90 percent of what i have i have suffered from insomnia i i have you know headaches and all sorts of craziness because i give so much energy and emphasis and time and love and care and concern and trying to be patient and listen to people and not stab anyone um it's tough and I give a lot of it, but I'm not going to give everything because those teachers end up being really resentful and, and bitter, and, and that carries over into the classroom so that as time goes on, you can see them getting like frustrated and they lose, you know, they, they don't have as much patience, and you can't blame them. I mean, they've given up. They basically have no life. You can't live that way, and that comes to our quote of the week, which is coming up later, but first got to talk about killer robots. Look at that segue. I rule. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? I gotta give mad respect to Phil Olson and Virtual Pizza for their special Killer Robots episode. It was a lot of fun, and I was honored to be part of it at the beginning. And uh, yeah, happy to inspire things. And I was surprised to hear Hal didn't come up at all, but I guess even with my definition of what a robot is, he doesn't qualify. But uh, yeah, I thought it was very interesting. If you haven't listened to that Virtual Pizza, look for the Killer Robots special episode. It was awesome. Uh, also, today I posted something about robots dancing. They're making robots that can dance, and it's not just like we program it in. It's they're they're they've got scripts that they function off of, and they take one of the robots away, and they wave at it, and they get it to respond to that, and then they put it back in the group, and they get back into the dance routine. So it's you know, but this is part of the trap, man, because you get to be like, oh, they're so cute, and they're dancing to Thriller, and. And, and everyone's like, oh, they're adorable. And then they stick the key in your nose, and then they kill you, and you're like, How? why didn't we see it coming? This week, I have two stories about robots in the water. That's right, folks. You would have thought, oh, I'll be safe from the killer robots. All I have to do is go into the ocean, and they can't harm me. <clears throat> Not accurate. Uh, the first article is about this polluted, pollution-sniffing robot fish. 
Uh, and yeah, this comes to us from Discovery.com, uh, the Discovery Channel, whatever. Uh, it is a robot, a robot shaped like a fish, and this week it was swimming through the water off the Spanish port of Guillon. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, that's the French pronunciation. It's probably different in Spanish. This Pissine Robocop, that's the way it describes it, is designed to hunt for pollution. Created by a consortium of scientists funded by the European Union. <gasps> Government spending! Evil! Always bad! No, look, they made something awesome. The fish is about five feet long, costs about $31,000, and is fitted with sensors to pick up pollutants le leaking from ships or undersea pipelines. Uh, so it's really cool. The rationale behind making the robots... That's not part of the article, by the way. That was me saying it's really cool. The rationale behind making the robots look like fish is not just so they will look way cooler than non-fish mimicking equipment, but to take advantage of the hydrodynamic shape perfected over millions of years, and also because using a fin instead of a propeller for propulsion should make it easier for the robot to operate in coastal environments that are thick with weeds, just like real fish. So once again, Mother Nature shows us the way we should just mimic it, but add the robotics in so that we can track things with microchips. Uh, I think that's a cool use of robots, and it, I can't imagine that would end up with killing people, but uh, they find ways. Uh, and then there's a second article about robots in the water. Uh, this is also from Discovery.com, which <laughs> the headline, I'm not making this up, Robot Records Fish Farts. You're welcome, Stu. Uh, an autonomous torpedo-shaped robot called a glider launched by researchers at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg mapped a variety of sounds around the West Florida shelf while recording ocean noises over a one-week period. Among those noises were the familiar grunts and whistles from red groupers and toadfish. But at least three biological sounds reminiscent of crickets left the researchers puzzled. They think that the sounds may be from menhaden and herringfish releasing gas from an internal buoyancy organ called a swim bladder. So if you're underwater, folks, and you hear cricket noises, guess what? That's fishes farting. <laughs> Hip hop. Uh, last week on the Veteran Gamers, I played a sample from Gift of Gab and his song Way of the Light, and Stu really liked it, so I thought, hey, I know, I'll make the hip-hop segment of this week's show all about Gift of Gab to let people know, because he's really cool, and sometimes he's really laid back, and sometimes he's really aggro. So let me play part of that Way of the Light thing in case anybody here, for some reason, doesn't listen to the Veteran Gamers. What's wrong with you? Oh, you don't care about video games? Okay. Well, anyway, here's a sample from Way of the Light uh, that I played last week. Way of the Light, everything's alright now. When you're living in the light now. Come on, Way of the Light. Way of the Light. Running the rhythm, proceeding in the torch lights. Flowing on melodies, help me make my thoughts fly. Staying even rated the music, I'm off my. Rock a rockin' into the depths of the lost eye. Jumping off a cliff in the face of the fall guy. Never falling, knowing the heavens we all fly. To make some rocket ships telling you all by Wake up from your slumber, my children, it's all lies it's just awesome. It's a great album. Uh, it's his solo first solo album. He's actually got three out, I think. His newest one just came out. I haven't even heard it yet. So I'm going to be getting that. His second solo album was called uh, like 
trip to Mars or mission to Mars. It wasn't as good as his first one, fourth dimensional rocket ships going up. It's awesome. You got to check it out. Uh, Gift of Gab, fourth dimensional rocket ships going up. It's really great album, start to finish. It's got some really good variety of melodies and stuff. Um, he was also a part of a group called Black Alicious, and they all, they have a few albums. One's called The Craft. It's not their best. Their first one's called Neo, which is good, but their second one's called Blazing Arrow, and that's easily their best. It's got really cool tracks, and I think Apple ripped them off with the iPod ad campaign with the black silhouettes with the white cables for the earphones, because that's kind of what they have on the cover of Blazing Arrow, but people call that a tinfoil hat moment for me. You're just paranoid. Um, but I think it's an example of white man ripping off a brother, but whatever. That's just me. Anyway, the the be- my favorite track on Blazing Arrow, it's hard to pick one, but uh, certainly one of the best tracks on that album. It's called Release, and it's got several parts. One of them has Zach De La Rocha from Rage Against the Machine. So there you go, I, Pete. And, uh, and uh, who else? There's another person who's really into Rage Against the Machine. I, Pete, I think, but there's someone else I think who's like real big RATM fan. Anyway, uh, oh, Ad Roxky, I think is big into them. Anyway, uh, yeah, somebody tell him that he's on this Black Alicia song. And Saul Williams is on part three, but the first part is amazing. And this is when I realized the Gift of Gab was one of these artists that's unlike anybody else. I mean, we could talk about okay, Buster Rhymes is awesome. He's he's got a really good fast flow. He doesn't often say much in his rhymes. Buster Rhymes doesn't, but whatever. Uh, Watsky's fast. Uh, Mac Lethal's he's cool, but he's also kind of weird. And I mean, I love Mac's music, especially his song like Jihad is a good song, and he's got others too. Uh, but um, but but Gift of Gab when he puts his mind to moving quickly, nobody can touch him, and that shows itself in release. <laughs> this up. I love riding my bike really fast down a hill to this song. Especially if it's a big hill, you can just push yourself to go faster and faster and faster and faster. Prevalent melanin, elephant billing and carrying sedatives that'll give average let him in calluses, reckon with savageness, catalyst battling rapper the stagger right after the dagger is left on the cherished just caliber Attica shatter your algebra with calculus Damage your patterns, I'm pounding you so fabulous Enough is enough is enough and I'm busting up out of this shell and eruption and rupture your structure to fuck with your up and you got you a customer Huffing and buffing, disgusting, absolutely nothing disgusting me plus infinities up in me rushing your country percussion No one be destructing the boundaries wake up if you're lunging I'm Something or nothing, I'm hunting and rushing, I'm hunting for one MC's one And I'm stopping by foot through your armies, they couldn't have stopped me With shoddy tidy, widey, wider, these entire societies Inside of societies and survivors still remain alive MC, driving the flow, I'm gonna go 555 syllables ago Split them with a subliminal intentional digital pro Unlimited flows, unriveted, inhibited, visited Now you can't get rid of it, like what is this? This magnificent, intimate, 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 infinity In an ink center when I get big fat heads like X Benedict Pins, bless, shit, rip, whip, worse in a piece more Tell me that's not one of the best songs you've ever heard in your life. Love it! All right, uh, yeah, we're God, we're like a minute, we're like an hour ten now. Let's do this quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. 
Margaret Rumor Godden uh, wrote over 60 books, but she published them all as Rumor Godden because uh, apparently there's some concern about whether she would sell if she were uh, publishing as a woman, just like we saw in a lot of women in the uh, European literary canon uh, having to publish as under names that could be possibly construed as male names for the sake of you know recognition and stuff. Anyway, she was born in Sussex, but grew up in what is now Bangladesh. She returned to England for schooling and then opened a dance school in Calcutta. Later on, she moved to Kashmir. In her autobiography called A House with Four Rooms, she quotes an Indian proverb, quote, Each of us is a house with four rooms, a physical, a mental, an emotional, and a spiritual room. We tend to live in one room most of the time, but unless we go into every room every day, even if only to keep it aired, we are not a complete person, end quote. And I love that because, again, you know, leisure time, it matters. We all deserve it. And we have a lot of people, I think, who tend to think that they're only mental or they're, you know, I have students in school who just, I'm interested in sports and that's it. I'm a physical person. And the idea is that, like, oh, I'm a jock. I can't learn stuff, you know. Or, you know, you have spiritual people who are really into religion and they're like, well, I'm not, you know, an intellectual or an emotional person. You know what? You're all of the above. You're all of those four things. I would say there's, like, ten different parts to each of us. But, you know, we have this idea that we're segmented off. And, and that's totally bollocks, so whatever. That's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, uh, fbesp.org slash synapse. The, my website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff I've made. Shoutouts this week to Bygone Apprentice and Guest752, who left feedback feedback in the shout box. Other people should go and do the same, fbesp.org slash synapse. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen. I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or suggestions or news articles that you find. ESP at FBESP.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.